Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast 10 years in the making. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Earlier this year, the UK recorded 100,000 deaths from coronavirus, uh, which is absolutely shocking figure. It's more deaths than we saw in both world wars combined. What we thought we'd want to try and do on this episode is take a bit of a step back and think about how that's happened. We've talked on some episodes about the decision making in the government, which has led up to this. But what we're going to try and do in this episode is take more of a step back and think about the underlying structural factors. And to do that, we're going to have a look at Michael Marmot's review, which was published later in late in 2020. is how long in British politics the issues that Marmot is talking about have been discussed. So Marmot initially was asked by the Gordon Brown government back in 2008 to publish a review, which then gets published. I think um, he completes this review into inequalities, talking about social care, back in 2010. So he's reporting actually to the coalition government because it wasn't finished until after the election. Back in 2010, during the Labour leadership election, it was Andy Burnham, uh, was one of the Labour leadership candidates, and his main flagship policy in that election campaign was about integrating health and social care. Amazing, actually, that a lot of the issues he's talking about in terms of care, in terms of health and equalities, have been around for that long. Given where we were in 2010, uh, austerity was starting to be be introduced, cuts to frontline expenditure. No, it, it's not necessarily surprising that action that a point of debate um, in 2010, which the left went on to effectively lose, um, we, we we lost the argu- political argument on on austerity, as demonstrated by the fact we failed to you know, form a, a government after that that fact. The fact that, that that failure has real world impacts into some of the areas that were being highlighted by Andy Burnham in, in, in at, at the time is, you know, not necessarily that that surprising. One of the reasons Burnham was running on this, it was basically just a national social care service on top of the NHS, wasn't it? As a kind of like a, a core core idea. Yeah, so there were two main planks of Andy Burnham's campaign. One of them was this National Care Service. The other one, and in many ways, the quintessence of an Andy Burnham campaign was that he was from the North. Social care has been a thing for for so long, uh, even before 2010, as a kind of a potential political ticking time bomb in, in various formats. Made worse by the fact that we then had 10 years plus of, of austerity, cuts to budgets and, and more of these things. So... When you consider we've had 10 years of the left losing the argument uh, and not getting into power uh, nationally to undo a load of these cuts, it isn't necessarily that surprising that we end up in a position where where we can point back and say, hey, hey look, this, this problem 
has been around for a while. And actually, you know, you can find examples of people on the left pointing this out, that it was going to be a problem 10, 10 or so years ago. The austerity agenda that was introduced by the coalition government has left us in a very weakened position when it comes to public health and social care and a number of other things. But regarding in relation to, to, to COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic, public health uh, concerns and uh, you know social care are two very, very preeminent and important factors to take into consideration for why we are in the position where we've got one of the worst death rates in the, in the developed world. I think there's a, there's a couple of things, aren't there? I think one of them is, in terms of the politics of it, actually, I think the argument around austerity, the left is beginning to, to win and the shift in focus of the Johnson government, and even Theresa May, actually, is a bit of, a, I think, of an acknowledgement of that. Even this week, actually, we've seen Boris Johnson talking about trying to undo the health service reforms that Cameron brought in. So you just got Conservative governments chasing their own tail, um, in which one, go- one Tory government will bring in these reforms, the other one will get rid of them. The austerity we've seen since 2010, as you say, has had that a massive real-world impact, not just in terms of the preparedness for COVID, but also in terms of life expectancy. Since 2010, we haven't really seen any improvement in life expectancy in England. And that's the first time we've, since about 1900, where we've not just seen life expectancy continuing to rise. And actually that in some areas, and this is one of the key things from the report, it's the key thing about health inequalities. So in some areas, actually, life expectancy has actually reduced in some of the most deprived bits both in london and in northeast england actually we've seen a, a, the large some of the largest decreases of life expectancy in the, in the country and mortality rates have increased for people aged 45 to 49 and one of the things i think that's interesting with the report is that it's not just focusing on that public health spending it's not just focusing on social care it's talking about a wide range of failures in public policy isn't it so it's it's cuts in terms of housing as well and education quality of work it's a real wide-ranging report and it's really quite depressing read britain isn't the only kind of like uh, western nation to starting to see like either leveling offs or decrease is in um in, in life expectancy for the first time in like you know about around about 100 years or so america is also currently in a in a very similar position but in america's case you can actually trace that what a lot of that comes down to and into one root cause which is kind of like the opioid epidemic drug abuse and drug use which is you know rampant in in, in certain parts of, of of the u.s in the uk we don't have that one major factor that that we can say oh it's this particular public health issue like it's it but the fact that we can kind of say hey since 2010 when these 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 cuts started happening and those cuts cut uh, those cuts happened across an entire range of different services that were largely run by uh, local governments which is where the bulk of uh, public expenditure cuts fell correlation does not necessarily equal causation but there's a very strong correlation here um and given it lines up almost perfectly with when those cuts started to begin it's very hard to not draw the conclusion that i think michael marmot has con- has drawn in, in in this report that there are a range of different uh kind of like policy areas which as you say are kind of like feeding into all of this and this decrease in in life expectancy among 
uh, certain deprived uh, groups and deprived areas. I think the the other root cause is uh, it's interesting you bring up America as well as an example because the UK and the US are probably the most unequal. I think it's certainly the most unequal. I think in the G seven, maybe the G twenty. Part of the reason I think you have decreasing life expectancies is because of the inequality you see in in both of those countries you do have a bit of a vicious circle which is highlighted in the report which is that the more deprived a local authority often the more cuts that authority had to give as well for actually you've also seen a higher covid mortality in those local authorities pretty much all health outcomes you know they are they are significantly worse for um, deprived communities those facts of life that if you are struggling to make make ends meet um, then you are more likely to live an unhealthier lifestyle uh, as a result of that which leads into a range of other uh, health complications and health issues which tend which in in the case of the the, the pandemic you know a number of those have we we, we know for instance to be uh, kind of like risk factors in terms of more severe uh, kind of like uh, afflictions of covid as well as uh, just outright death from 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 the coronavirus um like obesity i think is the, the the main one that's kind of been 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 highlighted in a number of different ways that coronavirus follows this same pattern is is not necessarily uh, necessarily surprising um what it does mean though is you end up with these almost like hidden kind of like uh, racial aspects of, of a lot of the kind of like policy outcomes in that the, the, the reality is an awful lot of BAME uh, individuals are, there is a stronger likelihood that they will be living in deprived areas. There is a stronger likelihood that they will be living in poverty and, and things like that, which means there is a stronger likelihood that they are going to be more likely to be affected by things like the coronavirus and that the kind of like decisions made 10, 10, 11, 12 years ago um, by governments have had a, negative impact on those communities which was you know not done because of those communities were black or asian or or anything of that nature it just so happens that all of the communities affected by it were you know uh, uh, or or more severely affected tended to be more uh, diverse ethnically which creates another kind of hidden element amongst all of this sort of stuff which is you know our response and public health policy has a massive, potentially hidden uh, racial element, which hasn't been considered. And I think it was something, I can't remember if this was ever, ever actually Im- implemented, but that I'm, I'm sure there used to be um, policy, um, kind of like when, when po- policies had to be implemented or were looking to be implemented by the government, they had to produce reports which looked at, you know, what are the impacts on women? What are the impacts on, uh, you know, BAME communities, that sort of thing. I'm pretty sure the coalition did away with those, um, but just because it was, you know, it was another bit of bureaucracy which didn't need to be dealt with. But again, you're seeing how that kind of, that eject, one specific bit of a austerity agenda of let's just cut out unnecessary paperwork and, and things like that that leads to a negative health outcome down the lo- uh, down the line because of that uh, you know focus in one specific policy which became all encompassing for the coalition and pre- and subsequent Tory governments. What they see as bureaucracy, but actually is just due diligence. And given at the moment, you've got a government that didn't really bother doing economic impacts assessment into Brexit, say, don't seem to want to do any of the, as you say, any of the equality impact assessments into into whether or not um, certain policies affect 
certain communities and certainly not a government which seems to be quite intent on um, being anti-woke. A big part of it as well is that structural inequality. I think the report makes clear actually that a lot of one of the the, the a big determinants of, of the of more ex, excessive mortality when it comes to COVID was living in overcrowded housing, and as you say, it tends to be BAME communities that live have, have to live in areas of overcrowded housing, and also just thinking about jobs. So there's a really quite shocking statistic about how often workers from BAME groups had more negative experiences about discrimination and safety in the workplace and specifically the report says those who identify as black african bangladeshi and pakistani have been less likely than white british workers to have been given adequate ppe you're talking about 20 percent of pakistani workers 20 percent of indian workers for instance and so there, there is a double whammy where you've seen quite high mortality rates among professions like say say taxi drivers amongst say security guards often a lot of people in those jobs do tend to come from BAME communities and so you've you've got that structural inequality playing out there and as you say you had a government that was making cuts massively affecting those communities seemingly not really caring or at least not really wanting to acknowledge the massive structural effect that those cuts would have you sort of see that with with education as well and specifically the, the report talks about the effects of young people on this pandemic both in terms of of mental health but also in terms of schooling lost and the fact that you've also got say the closure of things like school sure start centers uh, there's well there's less support for children from more deprived backgrounds but also means that actually children from more deprived backgrounds tend to have missed out on uh, more schooling as well than those in richer backgrounds and again and part of that and we've seen that happening over the last month or two is the inequality of access to laptops which is still an issue eight nine months after it was first identified we've talked to death about gavin williamson and how he might actually be just one of the worst if not the worst education secretary this country's ever seen because of just how he's just completely failed to rise up to the occasion in any meaningful way at all and again, I think what you're kind of seeing here, and again, it's something we, we have discussed, is that the dearth of talent talent in the cabinet, really, that most of the people who are there are there because they're loyal to Boris Johnson rather than actually necessarily deserving of, of kind of having the offices they, they have, means that you don't have anybody in position to actually start thinking properly about these long-term structural issues. Um, as you said, like the, the current administration and government is, is determined to present themselves as being anti-woke because they're leaning into this, this, this culture war uh, approach because they've got nothing else to, to go on or, or, or talk about. So you have this almost like perfect storm in my mind of long-term structural change happening, um, which, as, as, as the Marmot Review reveals, shows that we were kind of like, even if this pandemic hadn't happened now, like something like this was going to happen eventually. Like with like world health experts have been expecting something like this for to, to, to be a thing for quite a while. So even if it didn't happen now, it would be happening 
at some point. And unless we had resolved these issues, these same outcomes would likely be happening. But we've got this other kind of thing from the other side of a, a cabinet that isn't up to scratch and actually isn't capable of dealing with these issues properly, either because they don't have the talent or the inclination, or they're just far more concerned with their own positions of, of, of power rather than actually doing anything meaningful, which means that nothing's getting done to fix, let, let alone a lot of the short-term issues, some of the more major long-term ones as well. But a couple of more concrete examples, I think, of that. So one of them, both both highlighted in the report. So one of them is food poverty. Again, Marcus Rashford has done a, ma- a marvellous job of highlighting that issue very tenaciously. And yet it feels like every half term, the government ends up in a row about whether or not poor children should be fed and time and time again, the government has come down on the wrong side of the issue. We've got half term next week and the Labour Council has, in Birmingham has said that they'll provide help for families. But then it becomes a postcode lottery because other councils run by Conservatives in other parts of the region aren't. Another way you can see actually is air quality and air pollution. And again, one of the health inequalities that the report talks about is that reduction of air pollution. And... Um, Shaz Rahman uh, tweeted us uh, in the week, um, hello Shaz if you're listening, about the £93 million worth of road building that the government's committed to. And again, we've talked about in in November, COP26 is happening and the government is going to be, Alok Sharma will be chairing a summit of most countries in the world trying to talk about how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, yet somehow you've got a government which is plowing on with Heathrow expansion, also going ahead with road expansion as well. How you can do that and commit to any sort of reduction in climate carbon emissions is baffling to me. Yeah, and again, it all kind of links back to this notion of the government not having any clear indication of what it is actually for, other than, you know, Boris Johnson finally getting to be prime minister. There is no actual ideology behind this government, I don't think, anymore. God, Dominic Cummings had one, but it's not there. He's not there anymore. One thing that Boris Johnson said he was going to do was level up throughout the country and try and reduce some of the equalities we're talking about. And the Marmot Review makes pretty clear that also, it's not just about rich and poor in the country, it's about rich regions and poor regions. And there are some regions massively more deprived than others. But what you'd need to do as a government would be to, say, keep an extra £20 a week in universal credit, which the Conservatives have still said isn't going to happen. You would presumably want, want to talk about trying to extend the furlough scheme. Well, that might happen, might not happen. But again, if you're a business, you've got staff on furlough, you think it might be running out at the end of April. Are the, is, is Sunak re, Rishi Sunak really going to do what he did back in October, which is wait till the last minute when businesses have already made decisions about whether or not they're going to have to keep workers on and then extend furlough? Looks like he is going to do that. Um, you'd also presumably think about how you're going to increase local government spending. Well, I mean, again, the, the Conservatives talk of what, what, what their strategy has been is basically talk about a massive figure they are providing to local councils. I forget what the figure is, but you know, it's like eight trillion, squillion, billion or something. Of course, what that negates is that actually you've had ten, the local authorities have had 10 years of cuts anyway. In, in terms of a philosophy, it feels like the, the key problem 
that the government made early in the pandemic was essentially assuming there was a trade-off between health and the economy. And actually, what the Marmot Review points out is, actually, that's not true. We've managed to have a double whammy of a massive economic hit and a horrific death toll because of the government's mismanagement, which, again, has been exacerbated, as you say, by, by the structural inequalities we've been talking about. If you were going to think about what are the next steps out of this, it's about saying, well, actually, you have to protect your health and the economy. So you need to fix underlying inequalities in terms of access to services, in terms of, I think the big thing in the review, which I find quite inspiring, is this idea of universalism as well. And that's a big theme coming through the report, is this need for the common good and this need for universalism in terms of services and making sure, say, that the funding formula for government includes a deprivation waiting formula. And instead, you do have a government which feels like they want to be a bit divisive and sort of look after their own, I think. I mean, that's part of a, a, the Cummings approach as well, isn't it? Certainly, the, the, uh, the Cummings has done very well electorally sort of fighting against elites, you know, whether or not it's campaigning against the Northeast Region Assembly or campaigning in um, against the establishment in the Brexit vote or campaigning against the, uh, the Remain establishment, say, in the 2019 general election. And the problem is that doesn't really work. You can't really have that sort of divisive framing when actually you need to try and frame all this as a collective problem that we need to act collectively to solve. Yeah, and I think just just to kind of like change the the the, the topic here slightly, that's one of the potentially the the one of the the, the lines almost that like Labour can take and actually can like to, when when it comes to like criticizing uh, Boris Johnson's government, in that you can kind of like just highlight the fact that it's just business as normal. And I think actually the um, Starmer's team have already started briefing out that there's apparently there's a speech or something at some point next week, I think, um, which is uh, which is apparently being briefed as though it's, it's going to be uh, Starmer's 1945 Clement Attlee-style vision for a post-coronavirus Britain. We've come together to deal with this crisis in a similar way as Britain came together to deal with the war. Therefore, we need to kind of like govern for the entirety of Britain, not just, you know, what certain parts of it. The government's kind of like decisions could come back to, to bite it in the arse, potentially, not just in terms of policy outcomes, but in terms of uh, political ones as well. But it's it very much is a kind of a wait and see situation, unfortunately. And sadly, I think wait and see kind of sums up the government's attitude to, to most issues, delay and delay and delay until you're, until you're forced to make a decision because all the choices have been taking away, taken away is effectively how Boris Johnson has made every decision in this pandemic. Do you think in, in 10 years' time, a probably rather... Uh, a much more aged Professor Marmot will write another review 20 years on? Or do you think that a government, Labour or Conservative, will have fixed any of these underlying issues? I think if Labour can actually win an win like either the next or next election or the one after, then it's, you know, I think a lot of these issues will at least start to be be addressed. The, the the issue is Labour actually winning those elections, which is a separate 
discussion, um, really. I struggle to see how the conservatives can actively deal with this properly, at least with the, with the current generation of conservatives that we have at the at the heart of government and, uh, and and in leading the party. It's possible that you know, let's say, whenever it happens, Boris Johnson ceases to be prime minister, and then we we don't just end up with you know Rishi Sunak kind of like swanning in um, and becoming um, becoming prime minister. Um, let's say there's a an upset upset in some description, and someone like say I, I don't know a quasi Kwarteng, you know, from a very different generation of. Um, MPs and kind of comes in and they they decide to focus on bringing in you know some of the newer MPs up to cabinet level and and all of that then you might stand a chance of actually dealing with this because an awful lot of those MPs won't have to kind of like justify tearing down policies that they might have voted for previously because that's the thing like uh, like the uh, Johnson as apparent uh, well the government started to look at undoing Lansley's health reforms how many of the cabinet voted for them in the first place? I know you just mentioned Kwasi Kwarteng as a sort of archetype, but then he was one of the co-authors of Britannia Unchained. Yeah. So I think he is actually that newer, more Thatcherite generation of Tory MPs that Rishi Sunak belongs to. What you are missing, I think if you were going to, I think, I think you're right if a, a Labour government that comes in, and we will win in 2024, Steve, we are going to be, we are optimistic and we are on track. So the Labour government that comes in then, I think probably will radically address a lot of this stuff. I think the question is, on the centre-right, is there a way of getting back to a sort of more one-nation conservative approach? Because you, like Boris Johnson sort of seemed that for a bit and then expelled most of the one-nation wing from... Conservative Party, including Winston Churchill's grandson, which was which was fun. But I, but the, the more serious point is, I don't see any mainstream centre right party who has that sort of approach, apart from possibly Germany, where Angela Merkel is Angela Merkel and is a kind of a political colossus in her own right, and she can just about pull it off. I don't see on the British centre right. Like, who else? Who is that? I mean, you know, Amber Rudd is now doing radio shows with her daughter. Michael Portello's riding trains, Ken Clark's in the House of Lords. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. It is a major kind of like thing for the uh, for the for the centre right in that so many of its its leading figures are no longer in in Parliament or or in some instances even involved in politics at all. And as you say, the ones that are like Ken Clark, they're in the Lords. And you know, even if Ken Clark was still in the Commons, he wouldn't be winning the Conservative leadership. Like, the, the only thing I can really say in response to all of that is. It's possible you might end up with somebody running from that kind of like that quasi quarting Rishi Sunak kind of generation who, as a means to differentiate themselves from the rest of the competition, does kind of go into that one nation unifying patriotic uh, kind of like approach to things. They could lean into the, the leveling up agenda um, in a way that maybe secures Boris Johnson's support, depending on how he ends up leaving office, you know, all, all of those sorts of things. So I can see a path to how it might happen. The only way I see that happening is with a big defeat. Yeah. You mentioned 1945. If the idea is that Labour won in 1945, even though Churchill was the war leader because Labour had a vision to win the peace. Yeah, I can see Labour winning because 
it has a vision for the future that the Conservative Party doesn't have. And it's a vision that actually speaks to collectivism, the common good, and that that forces the Conservative Party to change in a way that they have on austerity sort of for, for electoral reasons anyway, at least in, in rhetoric. That, but that's the only way I see it happening because that new generation of Tory MPs is so ideologically Thatcherite. Um, there are no wets. Um, you know, if the nearest, if the nearest you've got are probably people like the Saj, people like Matt Hancock, who are proteges of George Osborne, who's the Chancellor whose austerity got us into this mess in the first place. If they're they're probably seen as on, on the left of the Tory party, I don't mean on, on the left per se, but that sort of that Ken Clark equivalent, there is no left flank. No, uh, I think you're you you are right there, or at least something, uh, you know, cataclysmic from a policy perspective. Like so, but what you might find potentially in relation to to the pandemic is let's and this is not a prediction. This is just an example of something that might happen here. Come out of lockdown um, a little bit too early. Quite feasible. The result, uh, the, the the lack of track and trace capabilities, which have been are being cut back currently, means that South African variants, which we know have gotten into the country and are just appearing in places where we can't locate where they've come from. Case in point, just down the road from you and me, not that doesn't work, and you end up with pandemic two UK edition of the South African variant is now just running rampant in the UK and pretty much only the UK. If that's the case and we end up, you know, whilst everyone else is starting to ease lockdown restrictions and, and everything else globally, if we're still stuck for another year, having looking at Christmas going, whether or not we've got another year of this now because the government has screwed this up, that might be the sort of thing which could enact a, a forced change just out of the pure political survival. Um, because it would be a disaster of their own making. And that's about the only way I could see it happening without an actual kind of like election defeat. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you would like to support some of the work that we are doing, so this can continue ad infinitum, where do you have to go, Steve? You can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where you can uh, throw us a few quid every month uh, and you'll gain access to unique episodes, unique blog content, early access to blog content. Um, we've been known to do some well, kind of like roundtable discussions with ourselves as well as some of our kind of like regular contributors. Uh, all of these things have uh, are available to you if you uh, sign up as uh, one of our champagners. Um, hopefully we'll we'll see you there. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handles at nochampagnepod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm on Twitter at Paperback Rioter. I'm uh, at Acoustic Radical. Happy Potter. <laughs>